been, uh, as most of you know, for a number of weeks, um, dealing, well, actually several months, dealing with different doctrines in the Scripture, basic doctrines, and I hesitate to use the word basic because that doesn't mean they're unimportant, but they are foundational, and I think they're important. They're important for all of us, those of us who are in Christ and those of us who've been growing in God's grace for a time. It's refreshing. I never tire of studying these basic doctrines, studying them, teaching on them. And, but I think it's especially relevant uh, in the generation that we live in for our own sakes, but for the sakes of our children, uh, that, that they be grounded in the truth that they not, as Paul warned the Ephesian church, they not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And uh, people, people don't get uh, off track theologically because somehow truth has let them down. They get off theologically because either they did not know the truth or they did not hold to the truth that they knew. And so I think it's a good, it's a good refresher, it's a good thing to do. And um, so with that, with that being said, we uh, started a couple of Sunday nights ago on the doctrine of salvation. And we're going to read a lengthy passage from Romans chapter 3. So if you'll be finding that in your Bible, the third chapter of Romans, and we'll be looking at the latter part of the chapter and the early part, the few verses in Romans chapter 4. I'll give you just a moment uh, to get your Bible ready. Just to review a little bit, um, in the first lesson about salvation, we talked about sal what salvation means, and, and, and I know that we, would know, we should know this, but just to say it again, to repeat it, uh, we want to we base our view of things not on what we think or what other body, anybody else says, or well, what does God say? And in the matter of salvation, it's very important. We talked about what salvation means. There are many people, and maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but there are many, many people in our world today, at least in America, who, want, who believe they're saved and say they're saved, but they don't understand what saved even means. And so salvation is not a religion. Salvation is not just saying some prayer. Salvation is a work that God does in a person's life when they turn to him in faith. And uh, so the way of sal the true gospel is not about, as we covered this, I'm just reviewing, the true gospel is not uh, some religious works plus faith, it's faith alone in Christ. And, um, and our response to God's gift is to turn from our sin, that's repentance, and put our faith and trust in Christ. We mentioned briefly the candidates for salvation. Salvation is not limited to just a few people, it's available to all people. And, uh, and then lastly, we introduce this thought, and that will continue and expand upon that tonight. And that is the results of salvation. We talked about the primary initial result of salvation is regeneration. We're born again. We become new creatures. We have a new nature indwelling us. We have the Spirit of God living within us. Our relationship with God changes. He becomes our Father. And... So that's regeneration. Tonight, in Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at, begin here, several other wonderful aspects and results of salvation. So if you'd stand with us, please, if you're able to stand, 
We'll begin reading in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. We covered this verse talking about man's nature, his sinful nature. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that sentence continues into verse 24 where it says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As we read through these verses, as you look at your Bible there and read along, I just want to emphasize and ask us all really to pay attention to the mentions of the word justified or justification. Again, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who hath set for who God, whom God hath set forth, the, the pronoun there, whom, talking about Jesus Christ, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just. There's another reference to that matter of justification. That He might be just and the justifier. There's another one. The justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, talking about working deeds for salvation, is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness." Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of studying the word together. And I pray that the Spirit of God would be our instructor, our teacher, our reminder. And Lord, that we would not only learn truth, be reminded of truth, be grounded in truth, but that we might be edified, that we might be strengthened in your word and the truths of your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So the second aspect of salvation that we want to talk about after regeneration is justification. Now what is justification? It's mentioned many times in this passage that we read and many other times in the Bible. What does it mean to be 
justified or what is justification? In this text, it's talking about a judicial act, like a judge, like a, uh, a judge in his judicial position is the one who declares judgment, who declares um, punishment, who declares uh, any, you know, uh, restoration. So justification is a judicial act of God. It's not what we do, it's what God does. God is the judge. And justification is an act of God where He, God, declares a sinner to be righteous, to be forgiven, free from guilt, free, exempt from punishment. When that has happened, he's justified. You've probably heard this saying, this phrase, having to do with justified. It kind of makes sense. It does make sense. Justified is just as if I'd never sinned. Now you think about that. Imagine God looking at me as though I've never sinned. Imagine that. I, I, I have a hard time imagining that. I have a harder time imagining that he looks at you as though you've never sinned. <laughs> That's justification. God is the judge. Now, we need to think about that. We need to understand what that means because that position of being justified changes a lot of things, including the way we look at ourselves. Because in the eyes of the one that matters the most... In the eyes of God, when a person is in Christ, God sees them as though they've never sinned. He declares us to be justified. He is the judge. Look in verse 26 where Paul is writing and he says, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. God is just. And he is just. And... Not only is he just, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which does what? Believeth in Jesus. That believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. God says that he is just. So in a trial, the judge determines the punishment, the restitution, a, 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 what a guilty party must pay, and the guilty party doesn't have a say about it. The judge makes that determination. And our sin is against the judge, by the way. Our sin is against God. And God, who is the judge, declares that the only way guilty sinners can ever be justified, there's only one way that God has made for guilty sinners to be justified and that's through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Our faith in Jesus Christ is the only way for you and I to ever be justified. We can't work enough. A lot of people don't get this because they're really under the impression they've got to do enough works. If I do more good things and I do bad things and God's going to accept me. I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me. Because I know how wicked the human nature is. But, it's, but, but theologically, it's just not true. We're not justified by our works. Look in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. For Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh 
be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. How many people have told me sometime in, you know, when I've been talking to people about a number of things that, you know, they try to keep the law, we try to do good things. What, is, what really ultimately is the purpose of the law? Well, it gives us a guide to live by that would be better for us and better for our neighbors and better for mankind. But one of the primary purposes of the law is to show us our sin, is to show us our guilt. That's why that verse 20 says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So keeping the law, young person, doing good things, keeping the law, obeying your parents, you know, trying to, you know, put God first, not telling a lie, all those kind of things. By the deeds of the law, verse 20 says, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. I've known some pretty good people. Not many, but I've known some. Really, I mean really genuinely good people. But there's never been a person good enough to be justified in his own flesh or by the works of the law. Before God, we're all guilty sinners. Guilty before God. So justification is not by works. Well, then how are we justified? Look again in verse 24. It says, being justified freely by his grace. I didn't... You know, you know, when I became justified, it's the day I received Christ as my Savior. And it was, a fr it was free, justified freely by His grace. Now, I know what people, some people think this way. Well, man, if that's the case, I'll just get saved and I'll just keep living like I want to. Living. No, you won't. Not if you really get saved. <laughs> if you get saved, you'll be changed. If you, if you get saved, you'll have a new desire, a new nature. That doesn't mean you can't sin, but you don't want to sin. And if you get saved and you sin, you have a, you have a loving Father who will chasten you and correct you. I mean, that's, that may make sense. Well, I'm going to get saved and I'm going to just live like I please. No, you're not either. And by the way, if that's what you think, you probably don't get saved if that's what you're thinking is going into it. But anyway, we're justified freely, not by ourselves, but through the merit of of Jesus Christ. That brings us uh, to an interesting word in verse 25, whom God, talking about Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, what does that propitiate or propitiation, what does that mean? It's not mentioned that many times in the Bible, just a couple of times. But the word means that a sacrifice satisfies the just requirement of God for sin. There has to be something or someone that can pacify, can satisfy can the, God's just wrath towards sin. And Jesus is that propitiation. He's the propitiation for our sins. 1 John uh, 2 says, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. What is the grounds of our justification? Very simple. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed, the, the sacrifice of his life and body for our sins. And that's what it says in verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through what? Faith in his blood. That's how you get, young person, that's, that's what's going to transform your life. When you see yourself as a guilty sinner, when you see that you've broken God's law and you have a... A awareness 
that your sin is a matter between you and God, but you see that Jesus himself shed his blood for your sins, and when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and as 25 says, faith in his blood, you put your faith in his sacrifice, then God forgives you and justifies you at that moment in time. It's through Jesus Christ and him alone. Verse, this, this matter of faith is mentioned numerous times in this passage. Go back to verse 26. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which, what? Believeth in Jesus, puts his faith in Jesus Christ, receives Christ, puts his faith, and whether you say believes or receives, it's, this, it's all the same matter. It's trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Verse 28, it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by what? Faith without the deeds of the law. In verse 29 and 30, Paul brings up a very valid subject, and that is having to do with Gentiles and Jews and, and the matter of circumcision and the law as far as the Ju Jewish world is concerned. Verse 29, is he the God of the Jews only? Rhetorical question, no. He's not the God of the Jews only. Verse 29, is he not also of the Gentiles? Absolutely yes. Paul answers the question, yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God. There's only one God, and that one God has made one way of justification. See it is one God which shall judge, justify, excuse me, which shall justify the, uh, the circumcision, that's the Jews, that can justify the circumcision by what? By faith and uncircumcised, the Gentiles. The uncircumcision through faith. It's all the same. One way, one plan, one sacrifice, one salvation, and it's all through faith in the, in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So, in chapter 4, we read this a moment ago. Look in verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. If a man, if a man could make himself right with God by his own works, he would tend to be proud of that. He has whereof to glory. Look what I did. Look how I've, so if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? What does the Bible say? Quoting from Genesis, Paul writes, Abraham believed God, faith, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed God by faith, and it was counted. Look in, look in verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the good? No. Justifieth the ungodly. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's so contradictory to our natural inclination. Our natural inclination, as we talked last time when we were talking about salvation, is the approach that Cain took. I'm going to present the work of my hands, and that'll make me earn favor with God. Now listen, I'm not against trying to live a good life and living a holy life. We ought to try to live by the Word of God. I'm not saying that. I think you know better than that. 
But that's not going to earn you salvation. Salvation is completely in the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. His faith, Abraham's faith, was counted for righteousness. So what are the, what are the implications of this? Let's just imagine a person um, gets saved. They've got a life of sin behind them. They get saved. They're trying to deal with their feelings, the way they view themselves. And you know what? Most of us, many of us, maybe, I don't know what percentage. I'm not going to take a survey tonight. But I never feel worthy in myself of coming before God. I've never, I've never, I've never in my life, and I'm not just saying this, because it would fit in a sermon. I've just never once in my life felt like, well, I've done enough good stuff that God God's, uh, would accept me. Bait. No, never, ever. Because we're all, at our core, we're all sinners. And, but you know what justification does? For one thing, it gives us peace with God. We have peace with God. You know, you can fool me, and I can try to fool you, but you can't fool God. And that's the most important thing to know is that everything is right between you and God. It gives us peace with God. It also frees us from the burden of trying to achieve or be accepted by something that we can do. We're not under that obligation. We're not under that burden. That doesn't mean we don't want to serve the Lord and please the Lord. And we want to do all those things, but, but, but it's, a, it's a drudgery, it's a burden if we feel like we've got to do stuff in order to earn God's favor. And it means that we're no longer condemned. No longer. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Go with me, if you would, uh, to the right a little bit to First and Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And there's so much in this chapter that's relevant, but I just want to read the last verse that really uh, brings this home. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now that's just a simple statement, but it's packed with uh, thoughtful information. God, Jesus knew no sin. Never had sinned, never could sin, never would sin. Never gave in to any temptation to sin. There was no sin in him. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So the sinless, perfect, righteous son of God who knew no sin was made to be sin. He became sin. He didn't just have a little sin on him. He became sin. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, notice the last second half now, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's amazing. It's amazing to try to fathom that on the cross, Jesus would become sin for us. And He became sin because our sin was placed upon Him. But because we have believed on Him for salvation, 
Now we have his righteousness. That's an amazing thing. Isn't it amazing? We've been made the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of mama who was a good lady or righteousness of this preacher. And I thought, do you think he was a good? No, you've been made the righteousness of God. You don't get more righteous than that. That's what it means to be in Christ. By the way, young person, think with me for a moment. That's why we make so much out of salvation. It's not, salvation is not just saying, you know, I want to go to heaven when I die. When you get saved, you become a new person. You're changed. Everything about your life changes. And God declares us to be righteous. Uh, there's several other places this concept is mentioned. Uh, James talks about it, James chapter 2. Anyway, and, and, that, and we call that Im, imputed. There's a word that you probably don't use often, imputed righteousness. That means righteousness was put on me. Not my righteousness, but God's righteousness. My sin was put on Jesus, and his righteousness was put on me. Now, what can, you can't get a better deal than that. And when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us as a pretty good old boy. God don't look at anybody and says, well, that's a pretty good old boy. No, he looks at us and says, that person is justified because he's in Christ. And justification is a once, only, and forever act. Once God says you're justified, you are justified. In the sight of God, forever. Now that doesn't mean that you don't sin. That doesn't mean that God won't deal with you if you sin. It just means before God, his, your sins have already been paid for in Jesus Christ. You'll ne I'll never have to be arraigned before the judge again as a sinner. You know why? Because he's already declared me to be pardoned, forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You know, it, it, it really amazes me when people look at salvation like it's not a big deal. It's an amazing deal. So we're talking about salvation and one of the first benefits of salvation, the first results of salvation, is regeneration. We've been made new creatures. The second one that we want to talk, we've talked about is justification. Now I'm going to talk about a third aspect. We're back in Romans where we began, Romans, but we're going to Romans chapter 8. A third aspect of salvation, and I'm not going to say one of these is more important than others. I guess you could say regeneration because if you don't get regenerated, none of the others matter. But they all matter. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So a third thing happens when you get saved. You become God's child. You're adopted. Adopted into his family. Now what does adoption mean? Adoption means you make uh, a, a child your own who by birth was a child of another. When you adopt them, they become yours. Just like, just like they were your natural born children. That's adoption. 
And that happens when a person gets saved. Let's read a few of these verses. Romans 8 and verse 15. Let's read it again. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, you've probably heard this or know this, but that word Abba is, is a word that kind of describes the, the genuineness, the tenderness of our relationship with God's it's, it's like you would speak of your father as your daddy. You, you'd be a, a very tender, affectionate way. That's, we, we've been adopted and we see God as our father like that. And you don't have to learn to do that or earn that. It's, just, it's, because, it's because you now belong to him. He is your father if you're saved. So we read on in verse 16. It says, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be, may be also glorified together. So, so we become God's own child. Now that's, um, you, may not, you may not have ever run across this, but a universalist, that's a person, uh, universalism, believes that ultimately everybody's going to be saved. Ultimately everybody is going to be restored to a right relationship with God. And there are religious groups who believe that. Universalists. Everybody, eventually we're all going to be the children of God. But the Bible does not teach that. What the Bible does teach is that we're all lost sinners at enmity with God. There is a separation between us and God. And the only way you become a child of God is when he adopts you. And he adopts you when you get saved. It's all a part of salvation. It's a package deal. You don't get part of it and not get all of it. You get all of it. This is not optional equipment. So we're, we're not, you know, I believe in serving the Lord. And I think it's a privilege to serve the Lord. And by his grace, you know, we've been serving the Lord um, since right after we got saved. And, and I, but you know what? I'm not just a servant of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. Right? God is our father. And we do serve the Lord. But we don't, we don't serve the Lord because we'd be afraid what he might do if we don't. We don't serve the Lord that we might be accepted of him. We serve the Lord because he loves us. And he's accepted us and adopted us into his family. I would like to think, this has never happened to me, but I'd like to think if somewhere along life's journey, if I didn't have... If I wasn't with my natural family, that some wealthy um, aristocrat would take me as their own and adopt me into their family and make me a part of the family and, and just, just bless me with everything that a natural born child would have as a member of the family. And if that happened, I'd like to think that out of gratitude to them that I would want to be an honorable son in that family, right? So God adopted me into his family and God adopted you into his family if you're saved. You didn't earn that position. He gave you that position when you received Jesus Christ. And because of that, this Bible says here we have an inheritance that's coming to us. If children, verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to be adopted. Amen? The full 
effect of that will not be realized until we end this life. We go to be with the Lord. And we're going to see all the wonderful reality of what we have as the children of God. This, this life is not all there is. And this world is not our home. We're living for God in this world. But uh, we're going to find out when we get home what it means really to be a child of God. So we have, we have regeneration. We have justification. We have adoption. And then we have one other word that I'm going to mention, and it's also found in our text here in Romans, where we are now in Romans chapter 8. It uses this word in verse 17, And if children that heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be what? Glorified together. That's future tense. We'll be glorified together. And the ver- another verse in this passage um, refers to that. Look in verse Uh, 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. And the last part of salvation's glorious work in us will have to do with our body. I'm going to call that glorification because we're going to get a brand new body. We'll look at that in the scripture. You may like the body you have. I'm, mine's okay. It's kind of wearing out in places. But the worst thing about our body is not the aches and pains that we feel or the limitations we feel. The worst thing about our body is its sinful tendencies, the desires of the flesh. And one day we'll be done with that. We, are, we have been saved we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And for anybody, I've obviously not experienced this, but for anybody who's passed from this life that's saved, they find out on the other side what glorification means. Um, the redemption of our, verse 23 says, the redemption of our body. I'm not going to go back through this, but when we talked about The doctrine of man, we talked about the three parts of man, his spirit, soul, and body, and how the spirit is immediately transformed when a person gets saved. The soul is being transformed through this process of sanctification, but the body will will only ultimately be changed when when we leave this life. Uh, We're in Romans chapter 8. Let's let's read a little further into the chapter. I want to look in chapter, I mean, the verse. Later on in the chapter, yeah, verse 28. Romans 8, 28, one of those famous verses. Most people here know it. Romans 8, 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Talking about God's, God's providence in our life and that God is going to work things together for our good. We may not always understand why. And who is he talking about? That's not talking about everybody. It talks about those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow. God's foreknowledge. What does that mean? That means God knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. Just like this morning. God knew that donkey would be standing there tied up outside that door. God knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. 
And whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate. He put together this plan for those he knew were going to be saved. He put together this plan to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. God's going to finish the work that he started in us. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, it's God's work. How many times have we heard that? It's God's work. The work of God in you is not your work, it's God's work. And he's going to finish the work. Verse 31 says, after, right as soon as he said that, then he also glorifies, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely Give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Here's that term again. It is God that justifieth. So when it says there in verse 29, whom he, uh, verse 30, excuse me, whom he justified, then he also glorified. It says we're destined to become like him. He's committed to our glorification. Let's look at a couple other passages. Go to first. Corinthians chapter 15, that great chapter having to do with resurrection. And um, we're going to study word for word every verse. There's only 58 verses in it. And so, no, we won't do that. But let's look at this matter of this final, really consummate act of what salvation does to a person who's truly converted. Their body itself will be changed. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 49. It says, as, And as we have borne the image, talking about those of us who are in these natural bodies, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the corruption inherit incorruption we're not going to get to heaven the way we are not just talking about our spiritual condition but even these bodies this body of flesh we live in verse 20, 51 behold I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed not just morally spiritually emotionally we're going to be changed physically for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin 
is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen to your body when you leave this life. You know, when, when a person, we've had loved ones in our church family that have gone to be with the Lord even in recent months. And when they did, we know because of their faith in Christ that they went to be with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And that's a comforting reality. And they put that lifeless body in a casket, in a grave, put it in the ground. And where, where they are with the Lord, they don't have a body. They have a soul and a spirit. They have an identity, but they don't have a body. Because that body, as it was, will not work. They need a new body, a glorified body, a transformed body. And that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And the first thing that's going to happen is the dead in Christ will rise first and meet the Lord in the air. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And we'll have these brand new bodies. And there's a lot about that we don't know. But it's, I'm telling you, it's going to be a lot different than the one we have. That, will we be able to recognize each other um, in heaven? Yes. As long as you don't have a mask on. I mean, yes. We'll be able to recognize each other. We won't relate to each other in the same way, but we will recognize each other. But it'll be a drastic change because we won't have any sinful nature, any sinful tendency. We'll not, we'll not have to wrestle with evil thoughts and lustful thoughts and, and bitter feelings and hard feelings. We'll not, we'll not have to... We'll not have to think about any of that because we'll be changed. Isn't that going to be wonderful? I mean, we think about heaven. We think about sitting around on a cloud with a harp and, you know, those kind of things. But just think of it. It's going to be heaven just to be free, have a new body. And Jesus had a different kind of a body, right? I mean, when they were in the upper room on the evening of the resurrection day, Jesus, the Bible said the door was closed and he walked in the room. Isn't that going to be wonderful? Walk in a room without opening the door? translate yourself from one planet to another, it's going to be a wonderful thing. That's the kind of body we're going to have. It's a glorified body. A couple other references to it. Go to the right from where you are to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, For our conversation is in heaven. Now again, that's conversation there. It means more than just your words, your language. It's your lifestyle, your behavior, your, where, you know, it's your life. Our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior. We're looking for Him to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's going to happen when He comes, verse 21 who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working wherewith he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Salvation is a great work, isn't it? It transforms us. It regenerates us. It puts God's spirit within us. 
And it begins a process of just transformation where we begin to bring every thought captive. Our thought life is affected. Our attitudes are affected. But the last thing that will be transformed will be our bodies. And that's what this verse talks about. Let's go to one last place. Go further to your right to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. What manner, behold, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called, 1 John chapter 3, that we should be called the sons of God. What manner of love this is that we would be identified, referred to as the sons of God. Therefore, because of this, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Present tense, right this moment. If you're saved, you're a child of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. So what, we're the children of God now, but as you look at us, you can't really see what we shall be. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But this is what John tells us in verse 2. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And, you know, you may may be one of these people that think, man, God has done such a great work in my life that, you know, I'm pretty well convinced that he's done everything in me possible. But I'm telling you, It doth not yet appear what you shall be. That's glorification. He's going to make us like himself. And that's all a part of salvation. It's it's really amazing to think about all in, from God's point of view, all that happened the moment you, and wherever, however, whenever it happened, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, all that happened to you, spiritually, positionally, and as far as your future is concerned. It's all, all a part of salvation. You know, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, how great salvation. It's a, it's a wonderful salvation we have. You know, I'm... You know, in this doctrinal series, we have a couple more subjects we're going to cover. We're actually going to talk, take one more, one more Sunday evening and talk about salvation some more. But we're going to talk about other, a couple other precious doctrines. The doctrine of the church. The doctrine of last things, last times, end times. The doctrine of angels. Um, and, and all those things, you know, are of interest to all of us. But one of the great things about the Christian life is not just learning something new that's interesting or like prophecy or things of that nature. One of the great things of the Christian life is just learning more and more about what happened to you when you got saved, about who you are in Christ. And we, many of us, probably not all of us, but a number of us, we... Uh, beat ourselves up over things and 
we make mistakes, we fail, we wish we'd done things differently, I wish I wouldn't have said that, and we all have those times in our life. But the good thing to know is at the end of the day, in the eyes of God, if you're saved, you're justified. And you're a part of God's family. One of the things we'll talk about in the next session has to do with the eternal security of the believer. That's a part of salvation. But I don't know how to say this to communicate how serious I feel about this. But I think one of the most important things that some people could do is just really, really understand what it means to be a child of God. What it means to be accepted in the beloved, as Ephesians 1 says. Adopted into God's family. A new creation. Or old things pass away and all things become new. What a wonderful thing it is to be saved. And if a person, I think, really is saved and gets that, there won't be this kind of nonchalant attitude about salvation and the grace of God. It's the most wonderful thing that a person could ever, ever experience or be aware of is to be a Christian, a Christian, a child of God. Amen? And you may be here tonight and you're not saved. You're not a Christian. You don't, you know, these things don't really mean much to you. I'm, I regret that salvation has been, to me, so tampered with in our lifetime to where it's become just like something you do, you say, and you seal it because you just pray this prayer and never, there's no repentance, no genuine faith, no turning to God, no desire to be changed. You just... You know, I just want to, I want to check this off so I can feel good about myself. I want to tell you, friend, that is not salvation. That is not the new birth. And I don't say that to make people doubt. I'm saying if you ever get saved, you won't have to be convincing people you're saved because probably people are going to see in you this person is a different person. That's a wonderful salvation, isn't it? Amen.